Let's begin our time this morning with a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we gather together in spirit this morning, and our prayer is that your kingdom would advance, your gospel would go forth, and your body would be strengthened for the work that you have called it to. We ask that you would feed your people upon your word and that you would cause them to stand in the midst of a difficult and uncertain time. May your people stand apart from the world and from those who have no hope. May they be the ones who are stable and strong and secure because of your word and because of the work of your Son. We pray that what Christ has done upon the cross would be what causes us to stand, to not waver. This morning we pray for the leaders of our nation, our state, and our local government. We ask, Lord, that you would give them wisdom, that you would help them to make decisions that are righteous, Give them the insight that they need to know what is right and good to do and what they ought not to do. We pray that you would restrain evil in this world and that you would provide for your people. We ask this morning that you would open our hearts to hear your word and to be strengthened by it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this is our third Sunday of gathering in spirit, but not in body. And it appears there may be several weeks of this still to go. So we thought it might be helpful to include our announcements as a part of our weekly recording. Hopefully that will improve our communication Make sure that you're kept up to date on what's going on in the body. Currently, the elders have canceled all services and all church activities through April 12th. That's Easter Sunday. The elders are meeting via Zoom every week during this crisis. And so each week we plan to make decisions on the upcoming weeks and then keep you up to date on what we've decided. The April Messenger was emailed out earlier this week, and if you didn't get that or if you'd prefer to have a printed copy, just contact the office and we'll be glad to get you a copy of that. While we're unable to gather, we're obviously unable to take our weekly offering, and so you're invited to mail that into the church. You can send that to P.O. Box 200, Martinsdale, 50160. The insert for this morning's message was also emailed out Saturday, and it's available on the website. Down at the bottom of the website where the sermon was, you can click on the button that says Download Sermon Notes, and that'll get you the insert. This morning's bulletin was also emailed out last night and is on the website as well. You can read through that for additional announcements. 
We've been so encouraged by the steps many of you are taking to encourage one another, to communicate with each other, and to care for each other during this time. And if any of you have needs, please let us know about them. The Lord will provide, but the body is equipped and eager to help. So let us know if you have any needs. Most of you have already heard, but I wanted to take a moment and congratulate the Kidders on the arrival of Verity and Yael. They arrived safely on Friday morning, early Friday morning, and both Serena and the girls are doing well, but they are in the NICU right now. Their breathing was a little rapid, and it will be likely at least a week that they're in there, and it could be more. So pray specifically that they're able to feed on their own and, and take in the nourishment that they need on their own. Jeremy and Serena would like them to be able to come home as soon as possible, so please pray for that. And now let's give our attention to Pastor Jeremy as we continue our study in the book of Ephesians. Please open your Bibles, if you have one, to Paul's letter to the Ephesians in the fourth chapter. We will begin our third study of four in the first walk section of the second half of the epistle. If you will remember, the first three chapters of Ephesians are devoted to teaching and instruction, to doctrine, to what is. It's dominated by indicative verbs. It's, it's dominated in, in doctrine and truth. And now, starting in chapter 4, and in 5, and in 6, Paul is going to exhort us how to live in light of that truth. And in these first two chapters, chapter 4 and chapter 5, he divides up th this section into sections of instruction with the metaphor walk. And links all the way back to chapter 2. We used to walk in our deadness, walk as dead men, but we were made alive. We were fashioned anew prepared for good works that we might walk in them. And that notion of walk is daily living, daily conduct. And so the heading of this entire section, verses 1 through 16, is to walk in a worthy or a fitting or a corresponding manner to our call. And what we've learned in our study so far is that fundamentally what Paul has in mind in, in worthiness, fittingness, correspondingness to our call is to walk in unity, and to walk in maturity. First six verses focusing on that unity, and verses 7 through 16 focusing on the growth, the maturity, which is now what we are into. We saw last week that Christ gave gifts to each and every member of the body. We're going to see this week not just that he's given gifts, but he's given gifted ministers to equip the body for the work of the ministry. So I'd like to begin by reading verses 1 through 16. We'll have a word of prayer and we will dive in. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. 
But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure, the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Lord God, as we turn to your word now, I pray that you would give grace, grace that overcomes our separation, grace that overcomes our isolation, grace that um, knits us together in unity even as we are apart, grace that we might see with our eyes and hear with our ears, grace that we would be doers and not hearers only that you would build us up, that you would cause the seed of your word to grow in our hearts, that you would sanctify your bride, shepherd your people, make us more like Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Now this morning, we're going to look at the work of ministry in two points. Two points as we move along. I'll remind you, starting last week, Paul announced as we entered the second section of walking in a worthy manner, the section devoted to maturity, it's about these gifts that Christ has given. And so Paul announces it in verse 7, grace was given to each and every one of us. We spent a good amount of time focusing on the last week. We've all been given gifts of grace. Now this week, what we learn is in addition to gifting each and every one of us with gifts for service, he also not only gifts grace, but he gifts people. He gifts people. So we're going to look at in point one, what he gave. Point one, what he gave. And what he gave in verse 11 is gifted ministers. Gifted ministers. You see that? And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. So this is the second thing Christ is said to have given Back in verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us. Now, that is a gift that is to each and every believer. If you're a Christian, you have been given a measured, tailored, custom gift of grace, the corporate benefit. Now, here are gifts that are not to everyone. Not everyone is an apostle, a prophet, an evangelist, but they're gifts to everyone. That's the distinction here. So in verse 7, 
gifts of grace, spiritual gifts, are given to each and every believer. Here, a limited select number of gifted ministers are given to everybody. So what that means is as a Christian, you've been gifted twice. You've been gifted first and foremost by your own spiritual gift, by your own gift of grace. And secondly, you've been gifted as a member of the body of Christ by gifted ministers who Christ has given to his church. So we're going to go through this list of gifted ministers, and we begin with the apostles and prophets. Now, the grammar of this section is actually um, helps structure it. What Paul literally says, or how I would translate it, is he gave on the one hand apostles, and on the other prophets, and on the other evangelists, and on the other pastors and teachers. That's that's the way I read the, the structure of this. So he separates apostles and prophets. They're not the same gift. But earlier in the epistle, he's grouped them together. And I think for our purposes, they, they serve a similar function. They serve a similar function. Turn back to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. And in verse 20, we learn this about the apostles and the prophets. I'll go to verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And when we studied that back a few months ago in chapter 2, I argued, and I believed then, and I believe now, the apostles and prophets are not the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles, but rather the New Testament apostles, and the New Testament prophets. The reason I think of that is the other time Paul puts those two together is in chapter 3. If you look at chapter 3, verse 5, he's speaking about the mystery of the revelation given to him. The mystery is the church. The mystery is that Jew and Gentile are made into a new man, the church. Um, verse 4 of chapter 3, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets. It's now been revealed, the apostles and prophets. These are concurrent groups. They're, they're, they're coexisting. They're, they're living at the same time. So he doesn't have in mind Old Testament prophets, New Testament apostles, rather New Testament apostles, New Testament prophets. And in that sense, he calls them, their, here's your blank, foundational offices. They're foundational offices. Verse 20 of chapter 2, the church is being built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. So this is foundation. So how then is it foundational? In what sense? Well, I think, and here's your second blank, the way it's foundational is they are revelatory offices. Revelatory. I think that's a word. It is to the apostles and the prophets God has revealed divine truth for the church, and in that sense they serve as a foundation. Because really what is the foundation is God's word. And we know from reading our Bibles and from reading the New Testament, it's the apostles and the prophets who are writing the New Testament. It's the, the apostles and the prophets God is speaking through to the church. And so before God's New Testament truth is written, it is given, comes to the mouths of the apostles and the prophets. That, that's the idea. So he says in chapter 3, verse 5, this mystery was not made known 
the people of former days, but which has not been made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed, there's that word revelation, revealed, there's holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Now this helps explain two things. One, it helps explain why perhaps these gifted ministers do not appear in our day. I'm not, I'm not arguing from this passage for a strict view of cessation, but if we came to the conclusion that there aren't apostles and prophets walking around, that I certainly haven't met any. One reason why we might think, oh, perhaps this is why God stopped giving the church apostles and prophets is because that foundational ministry of revelation, once God's word is written and gathered and collected, is fulfilled. Now, that also then means even in our very act of reading the New Testament, we are benefiting from this gift Christ gave to his church. He gave the church, the apostles and the prophets, and praise God, thank you, Jesus, because we're studying the letter of an apostle, aren't we? His New Testament word comes to us through the apostles and the prophets. And so this was a very good, beneficial, wonderful gift he has given that each and every one of us, 2,000 years on, is still benefiting from today. So Christ, get this, has given each and every one of us a gift, and he's given us these, these gifted ministers through whom he made known his will, through whom we get his word. And in that sense, they're foundational, and they're foundational offices because they're revelatory offices, okay? So there's the apostles and the prophets. I'm going to try to move a little more quickly than I did last week. And all God's people said, amen. Next, the evangelists. Now, this is admittedly one of the harder um, of these ministers to, to define primarily because the term only occurs three times in the New Testament. It occurs here. It occurs in Acts 21, verse 8, where Luke writes, On the next day we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist. And it occurs in Paul's letter to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.5, where Paul exhorts young Timothy, As for you, be sober-minded, enduring suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. So Paul doesn't tell Timothy, evangelize. And then, by the way, that's the distinction on a maker. These are offices. These are roles. These are officers. He doesn't give gifts of prophecy. There are gifts of prophecy given in other lists in the New Testament. And that's distinct from prophets. It's distinct from apostles. And, and you and I may evangelize, but here we see what appears to be an office or a role of an evangelist. So Paul can tell Timothy not just to evangelize, but do the work of an evangelist. It's understood that there's a, a job description, if you will, of what an evangelist is. And so we sort of have to take it from the word itself. Evangelist comes from euangelion, the good news, gospel. Maybe you could translate a gospelizer. And so what I'm putting here as my blank is it, it's a church planter or church grower. This is one who preaches the gospel one who is gifted. And, and so it's entirely possible the early church, God gifted people to go out. Well, we read about it in the book of Acts. It's not just entirely possible. We see in the book of Acts, Paul 
being an evangelist, Paul planting churches. Paul's letter to the Colossians references another who has done that work already there. And he says to them in in chapter 1, verse 7, you also have learned it from Epaphras, our beloved and fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf. So Epaphras apparently was the evangelist who first preached Christ to the, to the believers at Colossae. So, it, it, like I said, because of the lack of New Testament um, description, not of the gift, we see evangelism taking place all over the place in the New Testament. But as an office, as a, as a gifted individual, an evangelist, we don't get a ton of information, so we've got to kind of act deductively. And so the movement, again, is first with those who receive and give revelation, the revelatory gifts, the apostles and the prophets, then on to those who declare it publicly, the evangelists, and then we get to the shepherd teachers, the shepherds, the ESV has and teachers. Now, I've grouped these together because I believe here they function as one office, one group of gifted ministers. Uh, the reason for that is, is firstly, grammatically, without getting to the nuance too much, in every one of these groups, Paul has the word the, literally in the Greek, the apostles, the prophets, and the word and. So it's, he gave on the one hand, the apostles, and the prophets, and the evangelists. And then what he says is, and the pastors and teachers, just one the. And what that tells us is we're dealing with one group. There's one article governing one group. He's describing one office or one group using two descriptions, but it's, it's one group we're talking about here. So it's the pastor teachers or the teaching pastors, shepherds, however you want to come at it. Interestingly enough, the predominant term used uh, by most English-speaking Christians for the, the office and the role I fill is pastor. This is the only time in the New Testament it receives that name. Interesting. Uh, Other names are used to describe pastors. Uh, the, the, The act of shepherding is used multiple times, but calling... Uh, the, the office, the role, the function, I do, a pastor. This is, this is it. This is the one place. The pastor teachers. So I'd like you to turn to Acts chapter 20 because I want to take a moment just to talk about this gift because this is a gift we do know something about. And this is a gift very active and ongoing in our church. And so I, I think it's worth taking a moment to, to explain what this gift is, the pastor teachers. In Acts chapter 20... Paul is on his way to Jerusalem. He's going to get arrested, and that's going to set him on his course to Rome, where he's going to appeal to Caesar. And on his way to Jerusalem, he is going to stop at Ephesus, the very church we're we're reading about, and he's going to meet with your elders for what is likely the last time. So in Acts chapter 20, verse 17, we read, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. Now this is important. He called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, then he begins his monologue. Notice who he's talking to in verse 18. He's talking to the elders of the church at Ephesus. And I'm going to jump ahead to verse 25. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone and proclaimed the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of you all. 
For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his blood. Now notice what he just combined together. He's talking to the elders, he calls them overseers, and he tells them to shepherd the flock. To care for the flock, literally is what he says. So he's combining those three ideas together. Now I could argue from here and other places, but I'll just use this as the one example now to argue. Here are your blanks. Pastor equals elder equals overseer. They're different titles for the same office, the same function. I think one focuses on the caring, shepherding aspect. One on the um, administrative or oversight or ruling aspect. But pastor equals elder equals overseer. First Timothy gives us the distinction between elders who labor. I would view it as almost full time. Someone like myself or Pastor Daniel who, who are freed to, to pour hour after hour into this work and elders who also do other vocational work. So I think there's a biblical distinction, but, but what Greg Sweet, Strander, Jason Grimes, Wendell do is no different in kind than what Daniel and I do. We do it to different degrees. We have different giftedness even within our ministry. But we're pastor, elder, overseers, each and every one of us. That, that's, I think, important to understand, that we're talking about the entire grouping there. And he gave the church this gift, the, the pastor, elder, overseers. Why? What, what function do they do? Well, we see some of it even right here. The first is church protection. Church protection. This is the pastoral, the caring aspect. In Paul's address to the elders at Ephesus, he warns them to be on their guard to protect the flock. Look at verse 28 again of Acts chapter 20. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. And the particular care Paul has in mind is being on their guard against false teachers. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Remembering that for three years, I did not cease night or day, to admonish everyone with tears. So the pastor teachers, the shepherd teachers, they protect, they guard the church. Church protection or church guarding, that's one pastoral aspect. The pastor guards sheep from wolves. That's Paul's metaphor. That's one of their functions. And I think by adding in the teachers, you get the other orb, so there's an oversight, protecting, guarding, watching over aspect. And there's a nurturing, feeding, instructing aspect. Church instruction. Now notice the shift here, because remember the first gifts, the apostles and the prophets, they were sources of revelation. They were vessels through whom God revealed his truth. He revealed the mystery of the church to his holy apostles and prophets. He's not revealing things to the pastor teachers. The pastor teachers are rather teaching the things revealed. And that's why it's so important for pastor teachers, for elders, for leaders in the church, not to teach their opinions, their own insights, but to teach God's word. We benefit 
from the gifted men God has given to his church, the apostles and the prophets. And any benefit I can do for you or the leaders can do for you is, is not in teaching my insights, my thoughts, but teaching what God has formerly revealed to the apostles and the prophets in his word to the flock. There's an instructive aspect. And that's tied in with the very qualifications of elders in the New Testament. So in 1 Timothy, um, he says this, the elder um, that he wants Titus, sorry, not 1 Timothy, in Titus 1.9, he wants Titus to appoint elders in the churches in Crete. And he tells this qualification, the prospective elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so he may be able to give instruction in sound or healthy doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict. I mean, right there, those the protective and the instructive the feeding and the guarding aspect simultaneously. He's got to be able to teach healthy, sound doctrine. He has got to be able to silence, refute, and contradict those with bad doctrine. So another reason I would argue that we know that the pastor-teachers are referring to one group here is because that, that's in integral to the office of an elder. is being able to teach and protect and guard and refute. So to sum up then, Christ has given the church, not just each and every individual member of the church, gifts, but he's also broadly given these gifted ministers to the body. Okay? Now, let's move on to why. Why does Christ do this? What is his purpose in, in this gifting, this double gift? Again, if you're a Christian, I'm a Christian, Christ has given me a gift of grace and he's given me, and I benefit from the apostles and the prophets. I benefit from the evangelists, and I benefit from the other pastors and teachers. One of the, one of the reasons also why I, I love and delight in the notion of a plurality of elders is that I'm, I'm not a top dog. I'm, I'm under the oversight and the shepherding of the elders. Individually, each and every one of us is. And so no one is not being looked out for. No one is, is not being shepherded. Or to put that positively, all of us are being shepherded, even the shepherds. Because of a plurality of elders means that they keep watch over me, just as I help keep watch over them. And in that way, Christ shepherds his church. But why? why? What's the purpose in all of this? Why, why go through this double gifting well, now in verses 12 and 13, he's going to tell us. And, and the blank here is, why did he give? Why he gave? To equip the saints. Now, this point here is absolutely critical for your understanding of the church and your understanding of your role and my role in the church. Because not every one of us are going to be pastors, teachers, apostles, prophets, evangelists, right? But every one of us has been given a gift. And the temptation, the danger, is to think that these, these office gifts, they do the work of the ministry. Certainly, in, in, in maybe bigger churches, and certainly in Roman Catholicism, that's the idea. You've got the clergy and the laity. And the clergy wears distinctive priestly vestments and garments to make their office and their role distinct. And they handle prayer. And they handle communion. And they handle the word. Right? But, but it's critical to get this. In, in Ephesians chapter 4, back in Ephesians 4, Christ did not give the apostles and the prophets, the evangelists, the pastor teachers, to do the work of ministry. 
He gave them to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. That's, that's critical. My role in that sense is an equipping, developing role. I, I don't do ministry by virtue of being an elder. I do ministry by virtue of being a Christian. By virtue of being an elder, I look out for the flock. And I teach and try to build up and, and equip the flock. That those, are the, those are the functions unique to my office. But the ministry that I'm called to is by virtue of being a Christian, gifted by the Spirit with a measured gift of grace. And that means I'm just as much called to be a minister as you are, assuming you are a believer. That's, that's amazing. And, it's, and it's, it's transformative in our understanding of what the church is. Okay, so let's just read it. Verse 11, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Okay, so we're going to move through this. To equip the saints for what? Your first blank, the work of ministry. The work of ministry. So I'll just pause. This might be a new thought for you. If you're a Christian, God has work of ministry for you. It's not optional. We, this whole section's been building up to this. Part of what it means to walk in a manner worthy of your calling is to walk accepting, embracing, leaning into God's purpose of ministry for you. God has not left you on earth to pursue your career, fundamentally. He hasn't even left you on earth to, to enjoy and, and, and be part of your family, fundamentally. The fundamental reason he's left you on earth is to do a work of ministry. That, that's the central notion of our identity. That's what this whole notion of living in a, in a walking in a worthy way is about. Is understanding and embracing how privileged we are. The, the ascendant, triumphant Christ gave gifts to you and to me. Tailor, fit, custom, personalized gifts of grace. He's then on top of that given another layer of gifts in gifted ministers to the church. And those ministers are meant to train and equip and get those gifted saints ministering the work of ministry. And so I just want to pause and, and challenge you that this is God's will for you. This is God's purpose for you. This is the immense privilege and the high calling that you and I were called to. And I just encourage you to embrace that. It's what you were made for. It's what you've been gifted for. It's what you're on earth for. And it is what you will find your greatest fulfillment and the most important work you will and can do. Your work Doing this is what will echo through eternity. Ten billion years from now, the consequence, your and my engaging, embracing the work of ministry will still be echoing in eternity in a way that our careers will not. He, he, I, I'm here. Pastor Daniel's here. The elders are here to help you do the work of ministry. And, and so if you're not sure what that means, come, come, well, 
actually in our current estate coming and talking to me might be tricky. Although I have had some conversations with some good social distancing in my driveway. Um, you can give me a call. We can figure something out or send me a, send me a text or give me a phone call. And, and that's what my heart passion is, is to help equip, get God's people growing and doing the work God's called them to do. It's why I'm so thrilled and excited when I hear the stories of the body doing exactly that. Because yes, the thing I've been giving myself to, people are doing it. That's, that's encouraging. Hearing the body serve itself, build itself up in love, minister to itself. Man, that gets me excited. Well done. Well done, those of you doing that, thing, that work. Okay, I'm sorry. I got I to gotta write this back in. Okay. For what? Why is he given um, these gifted men? To equip the saints for what? For the work of ministry, which he then goes on to rename. What exactly is that? Because that might sound intimidating. We don't generally speak of ministry unless we're speaking of religious terms. A minister, right? We can just call it service. I think that's how even the NIV calls it, just service. Yeah, sure, that, that's, that's a fine translation as well. It's the work of service, the work of serving, ministering. It's, it's all one and the same. And what he means by that is, is nothing more or less than the building up of the body of Christ. The ministry is building up the church. Next week, in our final message in this section, it's titled Biblical Church Growth. And I've already looked here a couple of times, but in verses 15 and 16, man, that, that is the hokey pokey. It's what it's all about. Verses 15 and 16 is, is the hokey pokey. It's, it's why we're here. It's what we're meant to be doing. It's, it's what matters. Building up the body of Christ. And the body of Christ is built up as people are brought into the body of Christ. And the body of Christ is built up as those in the body mature and grow. That's what it's all about. That's the end game for this epoch. The church growing. Anyway, so the building up of the body of Christ. With what little time we have left, let's consider the question then to what degree. How built up? You can imagine somebody might say, well, church has had 2,000 years to be built up. Perhaps, you know, three months ago, 10 months ago, 20 years ago, perhaps it, uh, it got to where it needed to be. Perhaps that work got done. I mean, I've already suggested that the foundation gifts may well be done. There's good reason to think they are. I've already suggested that the foundation's laid. We don't to keep relaying it. So perhaps the, this work of ministry got completed sometime in the 5th century. I don't think so. Because Paul goes on in, in detail how built up the body of Christ needs to be. To what degree? Let's take a look. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And we're going to stop there this morning. We'll pick it up in verse 14 next week, God willing. But here is plenty for us to sink our teeth into. So the, these gifted leading men are given to equip the saints for what? For the work of the ministry, which is specifically that ministry is the building up of the body of Christ. By the way, what's interesting here is, is Paul mixes his metaphors Back in chapter 2, where he described this as a building, he mixed his metaphors there as well by using body growth language. Um, I'll, I'll, here, I'll quote um, O'Brien. 
Previously, Paul used biological imagery of growth when referring to the building of the temple. Now he employs building imagery in speaking of the church as a body. Remember at the end of chapter 2, he wrote, um, being built in the foundation of the apostles and prophets, being joined together, it grows into a holy temple in the Lord, being built together in him. Well, he was slipping in body growth imagery there into the picture of a temple. Here, in speaking of a body, he uses building language, which also helps us know we're talking about the same thing using different metaphors. So, we're building up the body of Christ. To what degree? Until. Now, here's the notion of either time or destination, until we arrive at, as long as it takes to get to. Oh, look, the unity of the faith. And now we see the tie-in, the first six verses in here. Remember, the first six verses were focused on what it first and foremost meant to walk in a manner worthy or fitting with our calling was to walk in unity, eager to maintain the bond of peace and maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And we needed humility, and we needed gentleness, and we needed patience, we needed to bear with one another in love. And we needed to do all this because we have one Lord, and one hope, and one call, and one baptism, and one faith, and one body, and one God and Father over all. And then, after emphasizing our unity, Paul spoke about this diversity of giftedness. But here it comes together and comes into a head because what it means to grow in maturity is to grow in unity. Now, the previous unity was a functional peace in unity, that we weren't angry with each other, that we weren't bitter with each other, there weren't divisions and factions. It was, a, it was a functional unity. We're maintaining the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Here, the unity is qualitative. It's the unity of faith. You see, as we mature, we unify in what we believe in our own body's life, we could see that in, in our unanimous adoption of our most recent article to our statement of faith on marriage. It demonstrated, one of the reasons why that was such a blessing, that that was, you know, we can disagree. We don't need unanimous votes in the budget. We don't need unanimous votes in the color of the chairs. Because there can absolutely be a difference of opinion on those things. But man, it is so encouraging when it comes to matters of truth and doctrine that there is a unity of faith. So here, this maturity is that we would grow in our understanding of truth and doctrine, and we would come to have the same mind, and be in the same spirit, and full accord and of one mind. So part of what it means to grow in maturity is to grow in unity of faith. We have the same confession. We have the same doctrine. We have the same teaching. We have the same understanding of truth in God's word. So that's one measure of how long and hard we need to keep working towards. What what that means also is those of you serving in Sunday school and children's church, you are helping build the body up into one unity of faith. It's it's all part of this vision. It's all part of this, this grand scheme. Your participation in a small group, in a Bible study, it's it's working towards this goal. Unity of the faith. Unity of the faith. Next, until we attain to the knowledge of the Son of God. What do you mean the knowledge of the Son of God? Don't we all already know by virtue of being Christians? Don't we already know Jesus? Yes. And and this is one of those notions where it's yes, but you need to know him more. 
In fact, in the next section of walking, Paul's going to lay out his, his schema, his understanding of sanctification, of growth, and it's all about the knowledge of Jesus. Look just a little further. Um, look at verse 20. That is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self. He's talking about learning Jesus. Learn more about him. And, and I think that makes sense if you th- sit back and think about how we spent four and a half years learning about Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. And in the very real sense as a Christian, I'm going to learn more and more about Jesus till the day I die. And knowing him is, is, is a critical step in becoming like him, being changed into his image. So this work of ministry, this building up of the body of Christ is is a work that we need to give ourselves to until we arrive at a unity of the faith and until we all arrive at the knowledge of the Son of God. The knowledge of the Son of God. And by the way, notice the corporate nature here. Again, this is not something you can do alone in a shed. Until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. This is, this is a group project, which is why we need the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastor teachers. This is why we need a myriad of gifted men and women. And then, second point here, into, changes his prepositions, a mature man. Into a mature man. To mature manhood. And I think the idea here simply is a full-grown Man, he's made us in chapter 2 into one new man in 2.15. Now this one new man needs to grow up. And now we're actually shifting and connecting with what just came before last week. Now you remember, look in um, chapter 4, verse 9 and 10. What, what's the result and the purpose and the goal of Christ's ascension? He triumphs over sin and death. He dies on the cross. He bears our sin. He bears God's wrath for our sin. He atones. He removes our sin, removes God's wrath. He dies. He rises again three days later. And on the basis of his sacrifice, by faith in him, we are forgiven. We can receive forgiveness through his blood. So Paul says it in chapter 1. And then he receives the prize the reward of his faithfulness, and he ascends into glory, and he's given the name above every name, and he's high above all powers. Why? Look at, look at verse 10 of chapter 4. He who descended is the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And the picture, I argued last week, is of Christ so vast and large and immense that he is everywhere ruling and overseeing and governing all of his realm, which is everything. Well, the body has to grow up in size and proportion, keeping with the head into mature manhood, into mature manhood. And that maturity 
is again linked with unity of faith and knowledge. If I can jump over to Hebrews chapter 5, probably one of the, the clearest definitions or explanations of what is meant by this type of maturity. It's all about knowing your Bible. It's all about knowing right and wrong. It's all about discernment. It's all about applying truth. Listen, listen to this as he tells us what maturity is and isn't. He wants to speak about Melchizedek and in Hebrews 5.11, about this we have much to say. It's become hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. So a sign of immaturity is these um, Christians that the author of Hebrews is writing to probably are having a hard time tracking with them about Melchizedek. And they're dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk, which is the immature, is unskilled with the word of righteousness. So he connects a diet of milk, immaturity, with a lack of skill, familiarity with God's word, the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So the author of Hebrews identifies maturity as familiarity with God's word, an appetite and, a, and an attentiveness to truth. He, you, you care about, you want to know biblical truth. You, you, your eyes don't glaze over, you don't get distracted. You're, you're not dull of hearing, and a discernment that comes from the constant practice of distinguishing between good and evil. So this work of building the body is about uniting us in a common faith, about us all growing to know the knowledge of the Son of God, and growing up into the body that fits our exalted head. That's the idea. He then puts it into his final phrase here for this morning. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. See, at the end of the day, the measurement by which we need to grow into is Jesus himself. So a, a simple way of answering the question, is it possible that the church has has matured enough, has been built up enough, we can stop and do something else now? The answer is, do we look like Jesus yet? Have we grown into the stature of the fullness of Christ? And the answer has to be no. Now, hopefully, we can say a little more than last week, a little more than last month. But of course, the answer is no. The body does not perfectly reflect the head. Christ has been given the name above every name, and he will return. He'll return with the title deed, the planet earth. That song we sing, Is He Worthy? is in reference to he is worthy to open the scroll and its seals, which, which is in, in one sense the title deed for the planet earth. He comes back, and, and even though he's the, the universe's creator by virtue of his death and ransoming men from every tribe, nation, and tongue, he's worthy to take up and open the scroll. And he will come back and claim this world as his own. He will defeat his foes. Every knee will bow. Every tongue confess. Some knees will bow because they're broken with a rod of iron. But now, while he tarries, while his wrath waits, while his grace and mercy abound, he rules his church. 
and his filling up of his rule in the world is done through his church. I'll read one more quote to this point from O'Brien. He says this, the building of the body is inextricably linked with his intention of filling the universe with his rule, since the church is his instrument in carrying out his purposes for the cosmos. See, we're his hands and his feet on earth now. He acts on earth primarily through us. What does he say to Saul on the road? Why do you persecute me? And, and when we are living properly, we can say, as Paul says, it's not I, but Christ in me. So, so Christ is pleading with men and women to be reconciled with God, 2 Corinthians 5. We implore you, God himself making his appeal through us, be reconciled to God. And the body is growing up so that more and more we are his hands and his feet and his legs on earth. We are his body, in fact. He, the head is ruling and directing and controlling us just as our heads control our bodies. We need to grow up so that we perfectly carry out his will on earth. That's our prayer, right? Our, our, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's going to start in his people. It's going to start in his body. But this is the work to which we've been called. The, the church in this age is, is his instrument to accomplish his will. It's, it's the primary means that the gospel goes out. Yes, the very rocks can cry out. Yes, Jesus himself can appear. He has to Paul. Yes, God could send dreams and visions, but the, the marching orders we get in the New Testament, what we see again and again and again is his body is sent to proclaim his word, to bring his lost sheep into the fold. And here we see it's his body building itself up in love. Look at verse 15 and 16. This, this is, again, this is the hokey pokey right here. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it self builds itself up in love. In, in this way, here and now, Christ begins more and more to fill all things as his body grows up and begins to more and more correspond to the head. I'm going to stop here. We're going to finish this section out in our next study and just um, pray, pray that you would consider these things. God, God has equipped you. He has hand-chosen chosen, and measured out a gift of grace for you. And he's given you gifted servants to equip and train you to help you use that gift because he has a work of ministry for you and for me. And, and that work is, is none other than the building up of his own body. That's what it means to walk, to live your life in a manner worthy of your calling. You were called to this, so the corresponding fitting and appropriate thing to do is to embrace it and walk in it. And not to act as though this is something we do on Sundays and Wednesday nights. But, but this is what we are here for. Oh yes, we'll work our jobs. Yes, we'll raise our families. Yes, we'll have our rest with our work. But it's, it's governed by 
Its pattern and its orbit is set around this fundamental identity and call. So I just pray that you would consider these things. And, and I'm here, Pastor Daniel's here, the elders are here to help you. God does not assume that just because he's given you a gift, you know how to use it. Or you're as proficient at using it now as you will be with some training and equipping. So reach out to me. Reach out to one of the elders. We'd love to talk to you about this. And close now a word of prayer. Lord God, thank you for your lavish gifts to your body. Thank you for your gifts of grace, your gifts of gifted servants. Lord, help us to embrace with our wills this wonderful and high calling that you have given to us. Help us to give ourselves. Give us the grace to give ourselves to this marvelous work of ministry, the building up of your body, until you come again. In Jesus' name, amen.